0: From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle.
1: Welcome to the Daybook Podcast. I'm Chronicle pop culture critic Peter Hartlaub here with reporter Ideen Vaziri. Welcome, Ideen. Thank you for having me. So we have Robert Mailer Anderson today. Um, interview has already happened. I had a really good time. Quite a
0: Bay Area character. How'd you guys meet? Well, one time I made a list of the worst bands in the history of rock and roll, as you do as a pop music critic. <laughs> yeah. And I got a ton of letters. N- and the number one, we should, was? One stood out in particular. Oh, the number one band was Pearl Jam. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I disagree, but go on. I know, I know. <laughs> Write a letter. Uh <laughs> But one of the letters that stood out was like, "Has there been a worst writer in the history of mankind?" Riffing on my, uh, riffing on my list, and it started, you know, it listed a monkey with a typewriter, <laughs> and then out of the blue, it said Robert Mailer Anderson. So, I. I had to meet him because there's only two terrible writers in San Francisco. So uh, we met, we hit it off, and we've been writing terribly ever since. I love that you bonded over an angry Chronicle letter writer. Um, Not the worst
1: writer in the world. Boonville was a great, great novel. Um, People locally love it and beyond. He had a movie, Pig Hunt, which I remember it was like a drive-in horror thing, and He's got a new movie, Windows on the World. I think people will be surprised. Totally different direction.
0: Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's a topical movie and it, it addresses the current immigration crisis. And but it's set around 9/11, and it's about a family in Mexico that's where the patriarch feel, feels the need to provide for his family. So he finds his way into America ends up working in the windows on the world restaurant on the top of the twin towers and then the planes go into the building and so here's this person who is undocumented unaccounted for and his son comes to find him and also
1: that's... undocumented coming up exactly I across mean, the border um we're gonna go spoiler free with this but there's a lot of great surprises in it um, you'll have to wait to see it. It's on the festival circuit now, but the soundtrack with members of Los Lobos, the SF Jazz Collective, and Charlie Muscle White, who's in the movie, uh, a lot of Bay Area ties. That's out on August 2nd.
0: Yeah, and it's a, it's a wonderful eclectic soundtrack that it, it, even though the movie is not set in the Bay Area, it feels like a Bay Area soundtrack and it's really
1: cool yeah and uh robert as as he mentions uh in the recording you will get to see this movie it'll be out later this year one final note we had a little bit of an audio problem you'll hear a transition near the end apologize for that Datebook podcast thanks for listening Welcome to the San Francisco Chronicle. It's
2: great to Robert be here.
1: Mayler Anderson. <laughs> have you been here before? We, we brought you through.
2: I have been a couple times. Yeah, yeah. I, I've come, come over to, to see the newsroom and to see how the news goes, and to greet other, other friends here over the years. But it, it's, changed, it's changed a little bit, and, and my memory isn't so great either about, about that.
1: But now, um, You have a news background um, in your family.
2: Um, absolutely yeah. my uncle Bruce Anderson is the editor publisher of the Anderson Valley Advertiser um, he started publishing me when I was about 15 after he took over the newspaper and fully believed that uh, you know a newspaper has no friends and you have <laughs> to be as radical as reality itself he sort of took on uh, Mendocino County like a beat cop uh, like everybody's sort of used to with the uh, newspapers and uh, I think a lot of people thought it would be short-lived uh, he would burn out or someone would kill him. Um, and I think he's done it now. He just turned 80 the other day. I think it's over 35 years. And still working. Still
0: still working is, you know.
2: <laughs> and people always say, you know, did that happen on specific articles? And we always say, well, that's the way we're telling it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, what, what were some of the early assignments he gave you when you started writing for his newspaper?
2: Um, uh, I did movie reviews and um, I would do, Uh, one one of the things we called just taking out the garbage was the MCOE meetings. And so he, at one point, uh, for the second time, got in a fight and punched out the superintendent of schools, who was my former principal at Ukiah High, and he was banned from the meetings. And my other uncle, Robert Major Anderson, had done it, uh, and my dad, Ken Anderson, had, had, had covered those meetings, and I think my cousin, Zach, had also covered those meetings. And so it was clearly... My turn to take, take out the garbage and do the MCOE meetings. Um, but I would write very thinly veiled, poor stuff like Fear and Loathing at Ukiah High. Um, you know, my, my version of Hunter S. Thompson and Bad Attitudes. And, uh, and then I would do interviews with like Kelvin Chapman, who was a local baseball player. I remember doing a restaurant review. Um, and I remember, you know, at a certain point I was Scoopy Anderson uh, during an informal internship you know, a piece of airplane would fall on a farm in Philo, and you'd, you'd go out and check it out, or you'd do the local elections, you know. I cut my teeth doing that kind of stuff, but I was always playing fast and loose with the facts, um, and always in opposition even of, of Bruce, not, not a, you know, I, I had my own axe to grind. And Bruce would be around the table sometimes with all the other kind of— uh, Local heroes from around the Bay Area that you guys are probably all familiar with, people like Fred Gardner and Warren Hinkle and his only real friend forever, really Alexander Coburn. And you know, Bruce would not run pieces of mine, and instead of uh, just red inking them, he would just pull Joseph Mitchell or uh, you know uh, off the shelves, or he mm. would give me George Orwell, and he would say, "This is read this," you know. <laughs> yeah.
0: That, that, that was kind of like your practice for writing your first novel, Boonville. That was kind of your training ground writing for the newspaper, right? Well, so my father was an English teacher
2: uh, before he was uh, kind of soundly run out of uh, Tampa High School. He taught at Novato High, and he was kind of, uh, there was a period where you could be a jock and kind of an intellectual. It was, it was short-lasted. Um, brought on by the, you know, recently death of Jim Bouton is kind of one of those guys or the professor uh, Jim Brosnan. Um, and so if you remember, like even those Burt Reynolds films, you know, like of a semi-tough or, or uh, the Pete Gentry, uh, North Dallas 40, there were kind of wise acre guys who, who were kind of doing, doing the thing. And so my, my, my uncle and my dad, they all kind of fell into that. And so my dad helped unionize the first uh, teachers union in Marin County And he was the president of that. And then, you know, um, times were very radical with the free speech movement in Vietnam and the brown power movement and the Black Panthers. And he was completely involved with all of that uh, to the point where he was accused, uh, never convicted, of uh, helping one of his students set four bombs off, two uh, B of A's, um, and then along with a lot of other stuff. So he was sort of drummed out of that. And him and my uncle both started Homes for Juvenile Delinquents. So um, one of the kind of interesting things I think about myself is that I believe that by the time I was 18, my folks were divorced. And so by the time I was 18, my mom and dad separately had about 25, 26 different residencies by the time I was 18. So we moved a lot. Um, And then I was partially raised by my grandparents um, on my mom's side. And my grandfather was a prison guard who fought in World War II and then re-upped for the Berlin Airlift and then Korea. I was a tough guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, my grandmother was half Mexican, uh, r- born in Rust, which has uh, since become El Cerrito. But it was Rust at the time, uh, Rust, California. Um, her mom died. She was raised at a convent by nuns here in, in San Francisco. And she's the Mexican side of my family. And, you know, her, her family, my, my family, the Martinezes and uh, the Higueras and the Baranda's, Um, We're some of the first settlers to California. Uh, So I'm like ninth or 10th generation. We fought against the uh, U.S. invasion of Mexico, Mm -hmm. otherwise known as the Mexican-American War. We had to surrender in Monterey. Um, So my dad always said, well, it's all good writing material. So um, as much as I'd like to credit Bruce with with, with some of that, my dad always gave me fiction. My dad uh, always told me to kind of I don't know if it was a defense mechanism, but to look at life as a, as a narrator, to kind of remove yourself in a way uh, so that you could, you could see what's happening in a way to kind of bear witness. And then to try to, to, to translate that into film, I mean, to, to, to sentences, to words, to language, to story, so that you, you can corroborate what you're seeing is, is actually happening. And so things became very radical and very crazy very early in my life and I was trying to piece it together. And so as much as Bruce was giving me those uh, uh, kind of people to read, my dad was giving me a steady diet of Flannery O'Connor and John Steinbeck and, and other sort of uh, handbooks uh, about how to read the world and, and radicalism, too, you know, from Autobiography of Malcolm X, Felix Green's the Enemy, uh, Man, Child, and the Promised Land. I mean, this was all just sort of standard equipment. And we read, too, as a defense mechanism before writing. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about your... uh,
1: No, no, don't don't ever apologize. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about your new movie, Windows on the World, which um, uh, I greatly enjoyed. I mean, a collection of artists and personalities, both on screen and behind the screen, um, behind the camera. Um, But I wonder, like, did you realize when you were young that collecting these personalities in your life, these family stories, this history might benefit you later on as a writer and even as a filmmaker? Were you even thinking about film?
2: I was always thinking about film, too. I was raised at the, the movie theater. Um, I think you said that you're a couple years younger than me. Yeah. Um, but I was raised at a time, too, You know, a California, first state to have no fault divorce, Divorce families, um, working class, underclass families. You would get, in the summer especially, um, movie money. Yeah. You'd get like two bucks. And, and the matinees, and uh, for underage, you know, uh, as a child, it was a dollar. And my father would say, oh, let's, you know, in the hot days, he'd go, let's go buy some air conditioning. And so we would go see, you know, anything. What, what were your theaters? Oh, well, so, uh, again, I'm a little schizophrenic uh, in terms of where my home is. So born yeah. in San Francisco, uh-huh. uh, and because I've lived here so much, and my father, during the divorce, he, he was much more interested in coming into the city than he was to going back to San Rafael, which was where I was raised until I was 13. Um, and my uncle Bruce, who I'm very close with, and so it, it makes sense to continue to talk about him. Also, in terms of Windows on the World, I, I co-wrote that with my cousin Zach, who's mm-hmm. his oldest child. Um, and so they, not to get more into family history, but Bruce, after you know, being a juvenile delinquent, somewhat like my dad, he was given a choice to join the Marines or go to jail, essentially. And so he joined the Marines, came out of the belly of the beast, and then um, joined the um, Peace Corps, went to Malaysia, and his radicalism there uh, got him in trouble where he was given, rumor has it, 24 hours, 48 hours to get the hell out of the country because it's the beginning of the domino theory over mm-hmm. there. And they apparently killed everybody on his basketball team, and he got out of the country. But he had a son, Zach, and a wife, my Aunt Ling, um, that were there. So he had to send for them. And when he sent for them, and they finally could come, they lived in a Chinese tenement building. So wow. we were, we were raised in and around Chinatown too. We being Zach and I, and and my dad would go in there and being a good beat. Remember, North Beach is right up against Chinatown, so uncles and Oiloy Goys and all that was, you know, stomping grounds and also cheap eats. You know, yeah. for a quarter you could get a pork bun, which doesn't cut into your movie money. <laughs> you know, like so. Uh, so the theaters then were were some of the theaters on Market Street. Um, we did hit the Castro. Um, I remember like the Strand, the Cannery. There would be all these kind of art house uh, uh, places as well. And he would take us to see things like Claudine, you know, like, uh, you know, other, other sort of, uh, you know, pro- problem films or, you know, like uh, uh, other, other things that captivated him. And then... Uh, the Rafael Theater, for sure. And then every theater in Marin that had their own name of the town, really. Sure. You know, the Fairfax. And uh, um, we also had the drive-ins, the the cinema. Um, and we would also, uh, over here near the the Cow Palace, we would go to the those drive-ins. Yeah, the Geneva. The Geneva. Which lasted a while. A long time. Yeah. Past, past its day. <laughs> yeah. um, and then uh, he moved up. To Mendocino County, you know, we're talking around 75, and my uncle was already there. And so the Ukiah Theater, and then the Ukiah Drive-In, and then the Cloverdale Theater, Mm -hmm. where Zach and I saw Robert Mitchum's Yakuza, you know, because it was just a hot day and we just went in. You know, our parents didn't really care. It wasn't looked upon that way or we were not getting that kind of guidance. Were you reading
1: like at a young age, yeah. Cervantes, but Cervantes is a, is a framing device and I'm not going to, this is going to be a spoiler free podcast, but, but <laughs> Cervantes quotes are a Don Quixote quotes are a framing device in the film. Were you reading that at a young age? What types of things were you reading early on? Were you
2: kind we, of, we weren't reading, we weren't reading Cervantes. I wasn't reading Cervantes. Zach might've, yeah. um, Zach had different reading, reading lists than I did. Um, uh, but, we were reading early on um, anything we could get our hands on, uh, including the newspapers too and the columnists. We were looking at Herb Cain and um, uh, we went – there was a point, I think like fourth or fifth grade when you just – we just made the switch. Mm-hmm. And so at school there's – like I would either be getting into fights or I would be reading in the library alone just with the same sort of intensity that you might throw a first punch, you know, or duck. Um and so right around fifth grade, I remember making, starting to grab like James Bond, you know, and then that leads in towards to, you know, all of a sudden you're reading like Mickey Spillane novels, you know. And then my dad giving me stuff like, you know, the, the primer sources of, of like John Steinbeck and, and not the Grapes of Wrath, but, you know, uh, Sweet Thursday, Oddly First and then Cannery Row and then, you know, you're reading The Pony and, you know, The Pearl. is not, you know, no, I'm, I'm never my favorite. But, um, you know, you're, you're, so that becomes adult fiction, right? Yeah, I just a lot of us read those books
1: because we had to. Somebody put them in front of us. And it sounds like you right. were doing it voluntarily, which I think is... Tough. One of the
2: things that happened when I... So Marin did have better public schools than uh, Ukiah and Mendocino County and Boonville, you know. And so most of my life, I've been reading the text before it was given to me in classroom. So it's all a training ground. So then when you're 15 and you start writing for my Uncle Bruce, um, or when you're 18 or 19, 20, you start trying to write a novel. And I felt Boonville, if, if I couldn't make sense of the characters out of Boonville and the constant flow of information around the AVA, then I should just give it up. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that, that's pretty pathetic. Um, but... uh Poor follow through on the second one, um, but uh, but working working on it, and uh, have done a bunch of other things in the in the meantime. But again, never never stop thinking that it's all good writing material.
0: Well, um, I'm curious what drew you and Zach to telling the immigrant story, uh, based on a story around nine eleven. What why was that the peg um, for telling the story of Windows on the World?
2: Well there was so many, I mean, lottery 9-11 was the, the big, you know, a big event in a way and the big, biggest event that to hear our country tell it in in a really long time. So that made an interesting focus. Also, there was a whole, you know, why us, how can people hate us? Like, you know, um, and it was the world trade center. (laughs) So you're talking again, we were, we were, we were raised as communists and socialists and social anarchists, you know, like, you know, again, back to what we had to read. We had to read Homage to Catalonia and almost, you know, be able to recite what the different, you know, parts of the Spanish Revolution were um, in terms of party structure. So we looked at commerce and we were always trying to tell working class stories in a way because that's that's who we are for the most part. Um, and so... That seemed like a really good sp- spinner. Also, I I came home from a, a weekend away uh, with the kids, and and the New York Times had a um, New York Times magazine had a photo essay of of families holding pictures of loved ones that they that were uh, they said were in the building, and they were from all around the world, and I, I was just I was hugely I was you know moved to tears, and I was like. And I told Zach, I was like, that's our story. That That's our way in. Not only are these working class people never, you know, that we know and we went to school with and we are kind of, you know, of a little bit um, unseen and underappreciated, um, especially the migrant workers uh, around uh, Anderson Valley, but um, the, the whole workforce, all of labor, you know, all the Eugene Deb stuff we got, all the, you know, uh, here's a way to look at labor, and here's a way to look at labor, not just in America, but how America affects everybody, you know? And so then we're like, well, what do we know, and where can we set it that makes the most visual sense and everything? And so we're like, well, Mexico, of course, because mm-hmm. that's kind of what we know a little bit more. And it's uh, we, we, we've always pictured that scene in, in the desert of, the, of, of a crossing, Um, of of various kinds, you know, to get here. Um, The trick, of course, is then, you know, why New York, as opposed, you know, I lived in New York for five years. I think there were only 60,000 Mexicans there. But, you know, people always have a reason to get somewhere. And if you talk to immigrants about how they ended up in Des Moines or how they ended up in Portland, and, you know, there's there's usually a a trail and a train. Sometimes not. Sometimes somebody just knows somebody, and it, it, like anything else, sounds like a good idea. You know, and so we we went at it. We we went at it, and we always knew that there would. We always knew that there would be a reckoning between father and son, um, and so so with that proposition, we, we set out to try to tell the story.
0: Right. So for those who haven't who haven't seen the movie yet, it's about. It's based on the windows on the World Restaurant at the top of the World Center World Trade Center, but it's about. This family in Mexico where the patriarch leaves, comes to America, crosses into America illegally to, uh, to provide for the family. And he's undocumented working in the World Trade Center and the planes hit. And then it, from there it becomes his son's quest to find out what happened to him because there's no record of his. The family's
2: in existence. Mexico and they're, you, you see everybody stunned like we all were by the the attacks and the buildings going down and then you know one of the family says that's where dad worked and you know now they got to see if he's okay but there's no way um except for him calling and he doesn't call um and so they have a hard time because he doesn't exist in america figuring out what happened to him and they kind of assume that he's dead until the mother who's a little bit of an unreliable narrator at this point due to trauma um, swears that she sees him getting out of the building alive on news footage. Right. So our, the the youngest son takes his savings and crosses the border to look for someone who's either dead or doesn't want to be found, uh, also for possible closure and for for other other reasons. But but with great challenges
0: because oh, yeah. there were
1: so many services then. But he can't um, he can't
2: use them all because he's in the same position his father was in. That's right. Yeah, and he's literally living on the streets because he doesn't he doesn't have. He doesn't have New York money, and again, you can't just get on a plane for any particular reason. And then they were also cutting down the you know the, the crossings of the borders anyway. So he doesn't have that kind of money. He Has to take a bus, um, and then he has to, to look look for his dad in a pretty low to the ground, hard scrabble way. Um, it's a, it's and then he to, to, and, and then then he gets a job uh, from a, a Nigerian gentleman to wash windows. To extend the metaphor of windows on the world, and instead of maybe. Your Anglo white guy, you know, uh, riding shotgun or helping, you know, we decided in the end that it should be somebody whose country has experienced a civil war um, and where, you know, two million people were dead inside of like five years to give a little um, uh, scope uh, and and another outside like uh, idea of what what the rest of the world is going on, uh, you know, there. And, you know, so it's a Nigerian immigrant that comes to New
0: York that sees this kid. And, and helps him yeah and to make to make the movie, you actually had to recreate these scenes in New York of post nine eleven with the uh, pictures of the missing people on the on the street. Um, how did that go over? Uh, uh, so again, I lived in New York for five years, and
2: I was waiting for uh, i would say maybe half the people to be angry about it um, It certainly you know, someone's going to be angry about something in New York, especially if you're you're making these, um, uh, oh, my God. Jai, what's the word? Remember we made the, what do we call them? Oh, like shrines. shrines. We're making <laughs> shrines. Thank you, Jai. <laughs> uh, we had to make the shrines, especially, and they're very public as we constructed them. Um, not one person complained, and people came up to us and we paused because we were, we were trying to be you know, sensitive to it, and we had to hear and did hear their stories. We, we bore witness to a lot of other people's stories, a lot of tears, um, and a lot of people telling us uh, at the time before we even made the movie, before it was you know, they could see anything, um, just by what we were trying to do, um, thank you, and that it was cathartic for them. Um, to see this and to reexperience this, and they were like, "Thank you for doing this from uh, a working, you know, and the immigrant perspective too, not, you know, from necessarily the fireman or fr- from a, a businessman who just happens not to be at home, but from from another nether perspective that, that 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 again is going untold and you know really resonates with a lot of people. Not that the other stories don't, because they they certainly do, but our story was you know. Um, much much more closer to home, I think, um, in terms of again being immigrants and a nation of immigrants and, and, and one generation, no generation, five generations off or something, you know, and so it became it tapped into everybody's psyche about what their story was and why they came and, and what they wanted, you know, and, and, and here here we were and here we are are grieving. You know, here here is this trauma. How do we get through the trauma? After the other trauma mm-hmm. of crossing and leaving and disrupting family, you know, how do we get through this other trauma of being, being attacked for, for, for what, what we are or what we've become or what, what we, um, we want to be? Um, and I th- it just resonated with people. Um, that's partially when I knew we were right on the, on the right track um, with, with the film into a deeper uh, resonance. When we've been playing at festivals, I haven't, we haven't had one screening where I haven't seen somebody cry. Yeah. Or that somebody has come up to us afterwards and said we've cried. And in fact, Zach and I were crying when we wrote the thing, <laughs> which is a little goofy. Um, and we have a graphic novel version done uh, that's going to come out uh, via Fantagraphics. And the illustrator, John Sack, said that he just reread back through everything because we're doing a global edit. And he, he, he in fact, cried again. Um, and it's different places because, it is, you know, the immigrant story is big. Uh, father and son stories are big. In terms of family disruption, um, and then you know, nine eleven is is just just the backdrop.
0: You've taken this film to different distributors. It's and it's been a challenge selling it, even though you have Edward James Olmos in it, and you have this fantastic soundtrack with the members of Los Lobos and members of the SF Jazz Collective. Um, and it's a you know a completed, finished, beautiful film. Uh, what are why are some of the reasons people are not willing to pick it up from the, these major what, uh, studios
2: there's a picture here i just happened to see of boots riley on the wall yeah, here. yeah.
0: so i mean we're up against corporate
2: america yeah. and we can talk all we want about who should do what and where but it, it gets to be a small number of true distributors that would put out a film like this um And they're not going for it uh, because they're the same people, for the most part, that told us that you couldn't have a a girl as the lead in an action film, you know, until you have the Hunger Games or, you know, the Mockingbird, whatever the hell, right? Or you certainly couldn't have a girl in an animated film because boys won't see that either until you have Frozen. Right. And you damn well can't have a black guy, you know, in a superhero film because who's going to see that? You know, so the universal truth is, again, like kind of a heteronormative white male. And we'll all see that. And, and basically, that's who's in charge of studios and decision making. Um, and then they have to um, decide that, lo and behold, you could see truth, yourself, humanity in another sex, another ethnicity than their own. If you go through the org charts, not just in Silicon Valley, but if you go into the org charts in Hollywood, you're not going to see Latinos in charge. Um, and so it becomes very difficult and you're not pitching that many people. And and Hollywood is historically full of cowardice, just, you know, rampant with it and a hypocrisy um, uh, for all of their celebration every Oscar year or something. You know, the it's a corporate it's a corporate world, and they're also under siege by Netflix creating a huge power play uh, and a monopoly uh, since the 40s, I believe. You know, they were trying to separate you know, the, the distributors, I mean uh, the, the – uh, what do you call it? The, basically the movie theaters uh, from the people that make them, right, because that's a monopoly, and they, they have, they're one and the same now. Um, so they're streaming. They own it, and they have uh, the means uh, to put it out there. On top of that, they're buying several theaters so that they also qualify for Academy Awards. So little films that were working the margins by people who believed that they had quality, right, would occupy maybe that space, and Netflix is eating that up too. Mm-hmm. You know, they bought The Egyptian and some other, other stuff. And so it's it's really difficult. Uh, again, Latinos mean different. I, live, I went to this, you know, Cubans in Florida are not, you know— mexicans in uh southern l.a or you know northern california or guatemala it's a different thing to say latino but 60 million latinos biggest group ethnically that goes to movies you think somebody would economically push the button aside from the fact that the film works but they'll also tell you you, to your blue in the face that oh well i guess you can do crazy rich asians but so because rom-coms the chinese rom got to work but God forbid, like Latino drama, especially around people raised on telenovelas, especially around a whole nation that could use some catharsis from the news, you know, where, where, where people, families are being, you know, um, separated at the border, kids are being, you know, separated from parents, um, that we could use a little empathy and, and catharsis and a conversation starter, that that would fly.
0: So what, but what it's, it's not. What's, <laughs> it, what's your work around? How are you showing it to people? How are you so, getting it out there?
2: So... Um, There's another kind of industry that I'm a little bit familiar with from having done a lot of nonprofit work, which is basically the festival industry. Um, And kind of like, you guys are writers, like it's uh, in the same way that you write your novel often and it's difficult to get an agent. Like that becomes a whole process in its own. And the agent may or may not get you your book contract even, but you have to go do that dance. That's what the festivals are sort of like. So there's this other adjunct of, again, mostly upper middle class white people in charge of of showing the film that that usually the festivals run uh, are nonprofits that run very much like my experience with SF jazz or I was on the board of uh, SF opera or you know I know the ballet and other things you oftentimes on a cocktail napkin run 50 percent donations 50 percent you know attendance you know ticket sales right so who are they looking at to show to show up and then who are they looking at for advertising? And then who are they looking at to be the big donors? Back to corporate America, back to 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 to, to org charts, and they don't see it as being that Latino stories are gonna gonna move the needle. But you walk around with EJO, Edward James Almost, and yeah, he's a hero in those communities. They they know everything he's done, you know, and from you know from Zoot Suit via you know Battlescar Galactica uh, to American Me, and it's super important. Um, or you'll get a, a kind of reverse thing uh, uh, about Ryan Guzman, our lead, um, where here's somebody that was in the last couple step up films that made, you know, I don't know, 120 million worldwide. And yet, you know, he's on uh, this show called The Number One Drama on Fox called 911. And somehow that doesn't equate to it. Mm-hmm. But if you were, you know, somebody that used to be in a John Hughes film or something, well, now here we go. And again, I don't have anything against those particular stories or those particular people, but it just seems that the bandwidth would be wide enough to show something else. And independent film has been something that's been a misnomer for a long time. You know, if Clint Eastwood's making independent film, then, you know, I don't have a chance. Yeah, and and (laughs) we we have these
1: discussions. Uh, I'm in the San Francisco Film Critics Circle, and we actually created a committee um, and several people of color on the committee who are just looking for films that you that are hard to find um, and and I think the the negative is that you know those films are hard to find for a reason that you just mentioned the the positive is that we now have the resources when a film is good that people can look and find those films and tell people in a way that doesn't have to involve the
2: corporations and and I I, I think that's the that's a tough flip side that you're absolutely right about. Yeah, which is at some point, somewhere, especially given the net, people just bootleg this and watch it, right? And that's and that's in some ways partly fine with me. Actually, have I've never, you know, shh, don't tell anyone, <laughs> but I've never done anything to actually try to make money my whole life. Just yeah. never never been my outtake ever. Um, I've chosen projects once in a while thinking that, ah, oh, this might have a little bit more viability or something. So, you know, eh, why not this one as opposed, you know, all things being equal. Um, but I, I've never done anything because of the money that way. Um, so if it gets out there and has its effect, great. We, we, we made this film also because we sold it to Miramax a long time ago. I think like 2003 like we had this idea and we wrote it mm-hmm. um, and then it went into turn around, turn around, turn around and doing a lot of work, uh, political work and some of it uh, a little more conservative than my family would normally do. You know, I, I did a bunch of work for Obama and trying to help, you know, hold her with gerrymandering and stuff like that um, and other political candidates. They continued to tell us, including our, our attorney general, hey, we, we have to change the narrative. Aren't you a writer? Aren't you a storyteller? And so we need films like this to be out there so that we can change hearts and minds so that everybody's image of Latinos isn't gangbangers and, and maids or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in my head, I'm like, well, all right, we've got to change 50,000 votes across those three states, right? And so it has to play those malls. So there were concerns about that as well that we did do. It's not in Spanish. You know, it's not, it's with a, American cast, you know, they're, they're not from Mazadlan where it's set. So there, there, there are those kind of considerations. Um, and so I, I do think it will get out there. The downside is I don't know how many people like myself there are, and I don't mean that in a self-congratulatory way, but if you can't do things, if if it's not viable for profit, um, then that's going to cut way, 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 way back. Um, and there's a design here to lessen the value of something. Um, uh, because it's Hispanic, because it's Mexican, you know, like that, just, uh, you know, take five bucks off, me- you know, uh, in the same way that like, you know, you get Chinese food, how much are you paying for pork fried rice? you know, like, that's only, it's got a cap, French food on the other hand, or, you know what I mean? You can, you can work, you know, thanks to Charles Fang for, you know, changing the, some of that around a little bit, uh, but, uh, with the slanted door, but do you know, like it has to be viable. Um, and right now, especially amazon and netflix and people they've created a system such that people will do good work and they'll snap it up for nothing and it just makes it hard for other people to do that because then you go back to hollywood with a good product and the first thing they look at was how much did it make and you tell them nothing and they're like "Well, will see you know you don't get to do it right now though i'm you know super very very happy about what's happening mostly in oakland seems to me uh With, uh, you know, sorry to bother you and uh, blind spotting. Blind spotting. I really like blind spotting. Yeah. My my best friends growing up was... we had a lot of those conversations, him Mm -hmm. being black and me being white. And and, and that was, there's fantastic, important moments in that film. Yeah. Digging deep into the Quick Way hamburger stand, that
0: was, I I used to live a couple blocks from there. I used to go to the serenader that wasn't so far (laughs) from (laughs) me. Let's, uh, let's, (laughs) if if you don't mind, let's, let's talk about, so you, you lived. you're working, in, you were living above Café Trieste in an SRO, writing. Absolutely. And, but your, your personal fortunes changed. So you would come up, you know, lower class in Marin. And th- w- through, yeah, through marriage, in you...
2: Came th- into money. We, we always joke money. that, that my wife and I made our money the old fashioned way. You know,
0: she inherited it and I married it. So um, did that, how did that change your values or your perspective on, on the world?
2: It, it's always hard. Cause when you get older, it's not one, one particular event, you know, it's a lot of things that they that, that put you on different paths. Uh, and so as you go along those paths, you learn different things. Um, so yeah, I, I, I never really lived in San Francisco and, and wanted to live here, but could really only afford to live in an SRO. And so I, I one I didn't go into, there was a murder in, like, six weeks later. And the one I chose was a pretty benign place in, in kind of North Beach, which would fit me perfectly. And, uh, yeah, I set about riding, and I jock coffee at Trieste, um, which was fantastic. And then I met I met my wife. Um, I did a lot of personal work, uh, too, to get to that particular place. And then, yeah, when well, mm-hmm. for my family, it was very difficult. It was very much, guess who's coming to dinner? Like, if you fall in love with, you know... Um, somebody who had money like that's the enemy and all people with money are horrible people and and so it challenged me that way I think it's still challenging my family because some of them I think who didn't think I was a horrible person you know the day that that you're you're you have a bank account you know am I a horrible person then yeah I didn't have a, didn't I never had a checking account until I met my wife for example and so that threw me into a different world of challenging my perceptions and misconceptions of things. And then in, in some ways, uh, you know, it, it kept me away from the darker parts of myself in terms of trying to, to, to write. I mean, that's, that's the truth. I've, uh, so uh, I took on other stories. And Zach and I started to write together as well because I started having children. And, and that changed. If I didn't meet my wife, I wouldn't – I don't think I would have had children. <laughs> um, uh, And so I could only handle a coffee and and eight hours of of doing that with somebody. And and writing scripts is a, you know, you can do that together. There's not a lot of grace in sentences. And it's good camaraderie. And and Zach and I were, you know, two peas in a pod and finishing each other's sentences. And uh, it's not lonely. but then it, it, you come into this sense of what can you do to try to change, I guess, your own nature, but the nature of your community, too. And that has occupied a lot of time. And then also, how does money really work past, you know, some, some Bernie Sanders-type broad approach, which is not very nuanced, or my, my parents' not very nuanced kind of approach. You know, I used to do my dad's taxes when, uh, you know, fill them out for him when he was when I was 16, 17. And even then I was like, these numbers don't work. You know, you'd say, just put the numbers in. You know, they didn't they weren't good with money yeah. um, and they didn't really know how it worked, even on a small budgetary level, let alone on a large global level, let alone on a personal level. And so, you know, I've, I just me and my wife just had 20 years of marriage and I've spent 20 years uh, a time, you know, in financial meetings and also. Seen how things work uh in terms of economics in terms of, of possibly what you can do in terms of arts um i clearly did a bunch of work for for sf jazz to try to raise 65 million dollars for the first standalone building for jazz in america yeah, congratulations on that that's a wonderful well, building it's awesome um and again, I'm not, I'm not the target demographic, if <laughs> I go there because it's it's just got a good vibe, and, and well, the architects did a great, uh, you know, job. As did Randall. As did you know, jazz. I mean, we yeah. knew that was viable. I mean, there's another thing that we we heard. You know, um, you're not going to be able to make the building, and if you make the building, it's no one's going to come. And I I think we're dealing with a a crazy 96% capacity in both, both uh, venues. And this is our like sixth season. So all the naysayers, including a lot of people who are on the board, you know, we, we kind of proved them wrong. And, uh, but that was really wonderful. Um, and it it got me involved again in a hard scrabble way of, of, of how to raise funds and what that means in nonprofits. I had done some of that before. Um, and then also I got to use my skills to to come up with the campaign slogans like the world is listening or to see that there was a cross pollination of donors between the MoMA and us potentially and that we could steal those donors by um, putting together photography books, yeah. you know, and that all photographers that were worth their salt seemed to be listening to jazz in the dark rooms. So they were donating stuff. No problem. And then we'd have to get their, you know, their patrons to see what was motivating them. Well, we
1: can we can we can close it all up, bringing it back to the movie. Um, people who listen to the soundtrack or see the movie are mm. gonna hear some familiar um, voices. And to- Charlie Musselwhite is in the movie, yeah. uh, I believe, carrying a shotgun. Yep, uh, which is fantastic. My parents live up in Healdsburg and see him at coffee. Um, and there's a lot of other people too. Um, it's it's not a San Francisco movie. It goes from Mazatlan to New York, but it's a San Francisco Bay Area movie with your ears, I feel like.
2: It's a you know we we were I was raised eclectically and so um I've always had friends luckily that are artists and stuff too as well as just, you know, um you no know, my friends were literally, you know, parents ran Giorgio's, you know, pizzeria and stuff like, you know, so there's 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 a combination of of people, but I leaned really heavy on my musician <laughs> friends because the budget got killed and we had to use the the song New York, New York in the movie because I couldn't figure my way around it. And I even asked my musician friends, well, what other song is like it? And the answer is none. Mm-hmm. So we had to get to work writing songs and, um, and recording them. And so, uh, Charlie, who was actually also in, a, our, our ode to the drive in pig hunt, uh-huh. um, he's like like a brother all these people are like brothers so it becomes it sounds like it's something to say like in Hollywood but you know I lean on these people heavily both artistically and otherwise so Eric Harland right away on board what do you need how can I put this together okay sing the song as well as you can into you know Jai's phone we'll send it out let's talk about it who can we get I can record it in New York Um, the collective five guys from the collective came in and Jeff Cressman, one of the recording engineers at SF Jazz you know they gave us time 2 hours or hour and a half before they went on stage mm-hmm. and they you know recorded the you know this Every Tear I Cry for You song uh, and uh, Don't Break My Heart again you know and then gave us other stuff Ethan Iverson comes in you know before his gig with the Bad Plus and has written something for me and then we play a stump the band kind of thing of I tell him a scenario and he makes something up on the spot that we record, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, um, you, Eugene Rodriguez from um, Los is an amazing Latino cultural center uh, and a band that he has started. Um, we're doing music, and Eugene's in it, and I've been a Los Lobos fan. I saw them uh, play New Year's Eve at the Fillmore when I was 16, and I'm 50 now nice. with uh, Dwight Yoakam open for them. And they've been my favorite band forever. You know, and so I, when I wrote, I had to write the kind of anthem that starts off the movie for the credit sequence and stuff. I always heard David Hildago's voice. And so through Eugene, we got the word out to David. And, and I had met him before for doing a, a fundraiser for Los place and he agreed to play guitar and do it. And I asked Charlie if he would he would jump on for a harmonica. He said, "Absolutely."
1: And that's inside of us all. Inside the, of us all is, uh, and er, where can and we'll finish off. Uh, where can people get the soundtrack? And are Bay Area residents, which is our core listenership, going to be able to see the movie? What, what's their best thing, best
2: way to do that? So the um, soundtrack is uh, coming out April, uh, August second. Soundtrack okay. will be out August second via Ropadope. Um, and, in fact, snippets are dropping now. We have a really amazing um, new version of New York, New York, the poem by The Last Poets, written by Abia Dano Uwoli, who also is in the film as a street poet. Yeah. Um, and, again, that goes back to my youth. My dad had uh, The Last Poet albums uh, around uh, the house. And, and uh, he came to the first SF Jazz gala that I ever hosted. <laughs> so... When I knew we needed a counterbalance, a bookend to the other New York, New York, we called him to see if he would spit that poem. And then David Sanchez's music behind it makes it soar. So um, that has already sort of dropped online. Um, But rope dope August 2nd. Mm -hmm. um, You can get the soundtrack uh, that is pretty wonderful. Um, And then to see the film, we are probably going to figure out how to release it Um, by November so it should be in a theater near you by November otherwise there are are some festivals that are coming up Um, and you know you probably could just call me (laughs) but um, you know hopefully you have a festival hopefully you want to see it hopefully there's distribution some of that has to be wrapped up you know clearly you have to keep a tight ship around that stuff but again that's not the way I go through life Um, so I'm not worried about I want more people to see it and to experience it and to spread the word
1: all right, well, I'm I, uh, looking forward to it. I enjoyed it, and um, my mother and uh, my mother, my grandfather's from Matzatlan, and I know oh. she's going to love it. I immediately saw this, and I'm like, I'm going to watch it again with, with my family. So when it comes, uh, I'm going to check it out and soundtrack on August 2nd.
2: That's absolutely, yeah, and uh, we should probably give a quick shout-out, too, to Richard Cabral, um, who's, who's, who's fantastic in the film. I mean, There's so many people who are, who are, who are fantastic, aside from Edward and Ryan, um, uh, Glenn Turman is in the film. who's up for an Emmy right now. He was in uh, Cooley High and before that was the, in the first production of uh a Raisin in the Sun, uh-huh. you know, with Sidney Portia. I mean, he's, he is fantastic. I'm glad
1: I didn't, when you said his name, blurt out a different world, because that's... Mm-hmm. A different I world, it's true.
2: Or he's known as the mayor. <laughs> Willie Brown told me that he, he saw him in town, and he said, hey, it's the mayor. He said, no, you're the mayor, because he played the mayor on The Wire. And Chelsea Gilligan has this unbelievable kind of breakout role in the film as well. She's she's fantastic as, as, uh, as, as a woman who's a, uh, an American mutt that helps... Uh, Fernando uh, with his father as well yeah. so it's, it's it is a pretty good eclectic film and a lot of San Francisco because we're an eclectic uh, city yeah. well congratulations on it and thanks for coming to the Chronicle yeah thank you this is our you know this is my morning cup of coffee I still get hard copy I still read the Chronicle <laughs> hard copy in the times every morning where's thank the you. bad reporter <laughs> <laughs> I sit right back of him he's a good guy he's um, awesome he's awesome
1: thanks again thanks for coming thank you both thanks Robert You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Aideen Vaziri and our guest, Robert Mailer Anderson. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke, and our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is Midnight Special by Ease Jammy Jams. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.